0: where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hey everybody, just a quick note before we jump into the episode. I am so excited for you to hear this episode with Sumner Brooks. It's a really great conversation. And this will be the last episode of season two before I take a break and plan some really awesome content for you for season three, which will launch sometime this fall, fall of 2022. So thanks so much for listening. Sit tight. Enjoy the summer with your family. And I will be back with more amazing content in just a couple weeks. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. I'm your host, Diana Rice, and I'm a registered dietitian a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a mom of two. Here on the show, we explore the messy place where your life and your needs are all mixed up with the ever-changing needs of your kids, all through a weight-inclusive anti-diet lens that aims to help you raise body-confident intuitive eaters and become one yourself. You can find me on Instagram at anti-diet kids, and I hope you'll also check out my free Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids, where we discuss these episodes and dive deep into the many challenging aspects of raising kids to view food and bodies in positive, constructive ways that we often weren't raised with ourselves. To inquire about working with me, whether for intuitive eating counseling for yourself or for help with feeding your child, visit my private practice website, tinyseednutrition.com. Before we dive in, a quick mention that the content on this show is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. My guest today is Sumner Brooks. Sumner is a registered dietitian and eating disorder specialist who has been working as an outpatient counselor with clients on all levels of the disordered eating spectrum for over 10 years. She is the founder of EDRD Pro and the co-author of the new book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. Let's hear from Sumner.
1: Hi, Sumner. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Hi, Diana. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really, really excited. As listeners of the show may remember, I had your co author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Amy Severson, on a couple weeks ago. And we covered a lot in that episode, but I was just going along, you know, working with my community, and I realized that there's so much more to cover (laughs) when it comes to raising intuitive eaters, and in particular, the role of nutrition. In raising intuitive eaters, which is I think where a lot of people get tripped up. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. But before we dive in, I would love to just learn a little bit more about you and your work and anything else you want to share.
1: Yes. Thank you. I'm so excited to dive into this. A little bit about me. I live in Oregon. I am a parent to two kids, an almost eight-year-old and a four and a half-year-old. I've been a dietitian for coming up on 15 years and have spent the majority of my career, providing individual nutrition counseling to adults and adolescents. And early on in my career, I was going through my own healing process of a fraught relationship with food and body really since a young age. And I was fortunate enough to find intuitive eating and I lived closely to Elise Rush and Evelyn Triboli in Southern California. So also, was really fortunate to be mentored closely by Elise Rush, who's the co-author of Intuitive Eating, for many years. I'm a certified eating disorder specialist, and about five years ago, I created an online platform that provides advanced training and continuing education to dietitians in the areas focused on eating disorders and mental health and weight-inclusive care. And after becoming a mom in 2014, I think these ideas around how do we talk about this as parents, how do we do this, how do we help kind of protect and support our kids with intuitive eating, those ideas really were seeds and kind of grew and grew over time. And then eventually the last few years, I've really been focusing, um, diving into the research and the sort of how-to education part of this work along with my co-author, Amy Summerson, and have really put a lot of thought into this area and I'm incredibly passionate about it. So thanks yeah. for everything you do because yeah. it's so important.
0: I, sometimes I feel like I'm like the vessel communicating, you know, like this big body of like how to even do this, which honestly is a very, very young science. I mean, we talk about nutrition being a young science, but yeah. raising intuitive eaters is like...
1: Yeah, not really yeah. much there, you know,
0: and so you know, I like I was saying before we hopped on the call. I am citing your book left and right, you know, in terms of when people ask me, like, how do I do this? I can give them a short answer. But when your book was published, which was just a few months ago, like my, my biggest thought was like, I can't believe that this volume and it's a long book. <laughs> all this information is available to parents who want to do this. Like it is a Textbook, if you want to do this. And I think it's just such a valuable resource for parents. And I can't believe it took until 2022 really for this to happen, but I'm grateful that it is.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. We really, we really pushed through 2020 to like stay on schedule with this. And I guess that sort of like demonstrates, you know, it, it's a huge part of who I am as a person, as a parent, as a professional, as someone who really suffered with food and body. Like, it's so important to me. And I know in, you know, my conversations and my clinical and life experiences, this is a really big problem for a lot of people. It's just not really openly talked about as much as it probably needs to be.
0: That's what I'm noticing, too. And honestly, I did not, like, embark on doing this work myself. I wanted to help families. And as I talked to Amy about in our episode I'm a person who's always had a very healthy relationship with food and I now realize like what a unicorn that makes me. But for me, it comes very naturally to talk to kids about food in a positive way. And when I realized that what came so naturally to me was like so challenging for the majority of people, I kind of put everything else down that I was doing. And I was like, you know what I can do? I can help people with this. And, and I hope that I am. But you know, that's why I think that collaborating with you and Amy and everybody else who's been on the show is also so valuable.
1: Yeah. That's so great. I mean, it's a point that we do bring up in the book is that you're either reading this as someone who has suffered and know kind of the depths of how this impacts a person's life, or you're reading it maybe as someone who really hasn't suffered. And it's incredibly important to realize that little things really do matter and that this relationship with food and body, when it's protected, is really a huge privilege to go through your young life protected in that way.
0: Such a privilege. And unfortunately, in this day and age, even if you are not doing the good food, bad food stuff with your kids we get to a point where you have to actively protect them against it. So you do, like, no matter where you're coming from on this stuff, you do have to put some conscious effort into it, unfortunately. But that's why we've got these resources. Definitely. (laughs) So let's dive into today's specific topic. I asked you to come on the show because I was getting a lot of questions in my Facebook group and on Instagram specifically about, you know, I want to raise intuitive eaters, but like also there's this big thing called nutrition that apparently I'm supposed to care about. I would say the number one question that I get is I want to raise intuitive eaters. I want my kids to have a healthy relationship with food. I don't want them to suffer like I did. How do I do that and like also steer them towards healthy choices, right? And I, I kind of wonder, is that like a how do I get my kids to have their cake and eat it too question? I want to know your answer to this. Like, is there a way to do that? Or are we asking the wrong question of, I want my kids to have a healthy relationship with food, but I also want everything in diet culture tells me that my kids need to be eating. What do you yeah.
1: think? Well, um, as I was thinking about this kind of, all right, so this question of, we want our kids to have a good relationship with food, but we also want them to have good nutrition. They can have both we can have both. I want to start there. It is not an either or choice that we need to make. I think it's, that's almost an assumption that people are making about intuitive eating. And so they're scared of it or they don't want to trust it. It's really pushing people away. So that's a misunderstanding. But I think that we have to start solving this dilemma of this question by kind of what you alluded to a minute ago, which is defining what do we mean by, quote, good nutrition. And for the most part, because of how caregivers are so conditioned by diet culture all around them, which I know you talk a lot about on your show, whether they realize it or not, they're probably defining, quote, good nutrition by these Western Eurocentric healthism standards that really aren't based in facts about how humans need to be eating to be healthy. There is so much that has influenced the way that we think about, quote, good nutrition and the way we define it that really is kind of just doesn't matter so much. I mean, you think about there are cultures all around the world who eat very, very different diets that all find a way to achieve growth and development and survival, and, you know, the continuing on of the human race, right? We don't have one way that we need to eat. There is no definition of, quote, good nutrition. It's a very broad term. But I think most of the caregivers that we're talking to think about this in a way of that they need to be monitoring fruit and vegetable intake, critiquing sugar amounts on food labels, worrying about too many, quote, carbs. And all of this is coming from diet culture but we just don't really understand that. And so they assume that this is the way to good nutrition. So I think we start there and redefining, all right, what do we think is good nutrition? You know, and there's a story in our book about Anna. And Anna is now a parent who was raised in a white American household where healthy eating was always the priority and really enforced. And Anna's parents didn't push their kids, you know, in terms of dieting. They didn't put their kids on diets, but the implicit messages were all around. And dinners were formed around, you know, kind of Weight Watchers, healthy eating criteria, things like that, really common for a few generations now. And so what we found with Anna, which is really parallel to so many people's experiences, is that this overemphasis on healthy nutrition was really harmful and did not lead Anna to a place of health and well-being and a positive relationship with food and body. So my point in sharing this is that this goal that we have to have a healthy relationship with food and body and have good nutrition needs to be approached from a place of understanding that this overemphasis on nutrition and rigidity is really Harmful, and we need to be aware of that.
0: Well, I have this conversation with a lot of dietitians who are on the show where we're talking about. Ironically, we, you and I are both dietitians. Most of my past guests have been dietitians. Most of us got into the business of being dietitians from that diet culture mentality of figuring out how to be the best eater, or eat a perfect diet, achieve perfect health through nutrition. And then most of us at least the ones who get invited on this show, you know, flip-flop to move away from that. And then I think it's kind of ironic to be hearing from dietitians, "Hey, don't worry so much about nutrition." And for me, it's especially ironic because I work with very young kids and I work with very concerned parents. Most of them don't follow me on social media. I run an insurance-based practice here in Oklahoma, so they just find me listed in their local insurance directory and they go, "Oh, great a dietician, pediatrics, they're going to tell me how to get this, you know, quote, unquote, diet culture version of good nutrition into my kid. And what I do is I analyze the kid's diet, which is kind of touch and go, because I have to have the parents like log it as if they were logging on my fitness pal. And I always screen for whether this is going to be, you know, (laughs) appropriate for them to do. And then we, we crunch the number, I crunch the numbers. And nine times out of 10, I'm going, you know, listen, this kid isn't eating everything under the sun. They're not eating kale and sushi and whatever, but I don't see any deficiencies here. Or if I do see a deficiency, it can be easily covered by a multivitamin, right? And so then, you know, it's like, well, where do I go with this parent? Because if they are at all invested in, you know, intuitive eating or anti-diet culture, we can have a lot of work to do. And if not... Sometimes they're like, I thought she was going to tell me how to get my kids to eat kale. right? But I think what this boils down to in what you were hinting at is there is a definition of, I don't even necessarily like to use the word like good nutrition. There is some definition of the mix of food that children need to grow appropriately, right? And, and not have nutrient deficiencies and you know get all the food that they need to become thriving adults. Then there is diet culture's version of healthy nutrition for kids. Let's put that aside, the diet culture version. <laughs> what are we actually talking about here? What is an appropriate mix of food for kids?
1: Yeah. And it's a totally valid question because of how confused parents are right now. And so we, you know, we included a whole section in our book on this for that reason because it's not that nutrition doesn't matter. Sure, it does. We're humans, we need food to survive. Nutrition is a piece of our biology and our survival. But good nutrition is enough of those building blocks, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats to support growth and development, to support an individual's unique needs, and to sustain us, you know, our metabolism and our energy for life. And that is important about nutrition. The way that that's going to come together is going to look different for every single person. And I actually have sort of like my own points. What do how do we define good nutrition? And if you want, I can share those. If not, maybe we could link to them or something. Can you cover people. it in a couple of minutes or? Yeah, it's just kind of a bullet list, but you know, good nutrition is a child not having to worry about where their next meal is coming from, is not feeling bad policed or restricted for your hunger, is letting kids explore different foods and trying things at their own pace it's serving food that isn't spoiled it's not having food used as a punishment or reward is supporting a child to be calm and safe enough and ideally not overly distracted most of the time <laughs> we know sometimes we can't control it but at meal times to be calm enough to be able to eat the amount of food that they need you know whether that's a child who maybe sits more on the anxious side of the spectrum and isn't maybe getting enough sometimes, or a child who might tend to disconnect from their body and overeat and not feel good. So we want kids to be able to be in their bodies, right, and settled so that they can honor their bodies. Good nutrition is connection with others around food. Good nutrition is knowing what and how foods come from the earth and to instill some respect and curiosity around that for a sustainable future. Good nutrition is getting enough water and fiber for balanced digestive function and is having respect for and connection with your body. And I think that along with that point that we talked about a few minutes ago about getting enough of these building blocks, these carbs, proteins, and fats, this really, to me, captures what we hope to have in this balance of a healthy relationship with food and body, and getting enough to eat in a way that supports our body function and our individual health.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting to me because I think that any parent off the street who read that definition would kind of be like, sorry what? Like you didn't mention calcium, you didn't mention, you know, all these things that we we hear even like, you know, how much protein and how do we get that in? The only nutrient I heard was fiber. <laughs> right? And a lot of those points that you made are really a lot more psychosocial than they are physiological. And I think that most parents, this is not on their mind. The psychosocial element is not on their mind. So the question that comes to mind for me is how or why is that the most, I don't disagree with you. (laughs) How, How or why is that the most important element of good nutrition versus this many grams of fiber this many you know milligrams of calcium that kind of stuff yeah
1: well the the very first thing is that we really don't know those numbers <laughs> we really don't know i hate to break it to everyone but th- these are all estimates this is all based off an imperfect science and what we do know is that humans evolved off of intuitive eating Humans did not need to measure anything, did not need a food label, did not need to read a nutrition science book to be able to seek out and eat enough food in the right amounts to survive any evolve. So all of this kind of overemphasis on the micronutrients, not again, not that we don't need them, but foods provide wide varieties and mixtures of these nutrients, Right. And so we don't just get our calcium from milk. We also get carbohydrates and protein and essential fatty acids, right? The way that food offers us nutrition, it allows us to be able to zoom out like this. We don't have to overfocus. Now, of course, there are situations where a child might have a nutrient deficiency, like my daughter had low iron when she was 3. And we needed to address that. So we have, you know, luckily we have some science to help us even more now. And and that can be helpful. But it's not helpful when we lose this bigger, broader picture of our relationship with food. When that goes out the window, health suffers. I totally agree. What do
0: you say to parents who might be with you in terms of, yes, we evolved on intuitive eating, but... Who would argue that the food landscape in this you know day and age with so many things are full of corn syrup and you know we didn't evolve on doritos. you know I, I'm not saying that I agree with that. but what do you say to someone who might make the argument of, sure, we evolved on wild boar and berries in the woods and whatever, but we are now facing you know a, a health threat from our food landscape?
1: Yeah. Oh, I love this question. So the first thing is that in all of those kind of points that I laid out with, you know, what is good nutrition? One of those points being knowing what and how foods come from the earth. I think it's really important that we are doing our best to get all kids access to foods that come from the earth. You know, of course, everything comes from the earth, but, but you know, whole foods, you know, nutritious fresh foods. That is really important. And a huge problem with our quote kind of health epidemic or the quote obesity epidemic is that not everybody does have equal access to food. So there is an imbalance in who gets to have, you know, food that is grown or fresh or, you know, flavorful and fresh or whatever. And so do I think that a human is going to be, you know, quote, In good health, however we're defining that, if they're only eating Doritos? No, I don't. I think that we need to get everybody better access to having this variety of foods that lets them explore and try these foods at their own pace that they're comfortable with, that does nourish their body, but in a way that's non-pressuring and enjoyable and satisfying. So I think that what happens with these questions is people boil nutrition down into something and they forget about the bigger picture, which is, do we have a culture and a society that supports parents in having time to grocery shop, to have money, to get food, to have access, to get food, to put food on the table, to store food if it's perishable? I mean, all of those things are not even happening for so many people. But we boil down this problem to, it's because they're putting these chemicals in the Doritos. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, no, that's missing the point.
0: Yeah, it's it's like a red herring, right? Like it's a distraction from overhauling the system and actually supporting families.
1: Yeah. And so it's totally okay to want to promote, you know, eating locally or growing your own food and getting more fruits and vegetables. And none of that is a bad thing. We can't lose sight of the big picture here too. And we can't lose sight of this very big and growing problem of rigidity and disordered eating and orthorexia and eating disorders. Mm -hmm.
0: So speaking of Doritos, let's say a parent has all of the privilege to do what you're describing, which... That's a big if. What then is the role of Doritos in a child's diet?
1: Yeah, so Doritos would would be there for maybe a carbohydrate, for something crunchy, for something salty, and just be part of the satisfaction of the food that might be available. Yeah,
0: I, I like to think of it when we talk to adults about intuitive eating. We talk about the add-in approach, like when we're talking about gentle nutrition we're talking about adding fruits and vegetables and whole grains and whatever to the broader diet but not doing so at the expense of those other satisfying foods such as doritos we'll just keep rolling with that
1: yeah <laughs> um, yeah and- i mean i always try to kind of put different foods out on the on the table and i think it's really interesting to watch my kids and just sort of observe like what are what are they going for like what's calling them today obviously you know i'm pretty interested in this stuff so I might put just a bowl of Doritos on the dinner table right next to the plate of the cucumbers and strawberries or, you know, the salad or the rice and really normalizing these foods is so important. I mean, when I think about the families that I have talked to that have concerns about Doritos or macaroni and cheese or cinnamon toast crunch or whatever it is, there is always an underlying element of how these foods have been kind of put on a pedestal or restricted or treated differently than other foods. And so we really can't just talk about Doritos without talking about how has this child related to Doritos for their whole life? Mm -hmm. How is that influencing how they eat them?
0: Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to change gears just a little bit. I also work with adults on intuitive eating counseling and a question that comes up all the time, it's not even a question, it's just a running theme, is self-care and feeding yourself as self-care. And we start with feeding yourself at all as self-care and maybe down the line we get to gentle nutrition as self-care. And I also work with adolescents and a lot of the times they are in a position of not really knowing how to feed themselves because they didn't have that model from their parents. And a lot of times it's because their parents are very entrenched in diet culture and the adolescents have the smarts to know that they don't want to do the same. And I love that. But, you know, they're kind of at a crossroads of how exactly do I do that? And I think about this a lot in terms of I once heard self care for adults described as anything that a parent would do for you as a very young child that you now need to take responsibility for yourself as an adult. And that blew my mind. That you know, it blew the pedicures and the you know mimosas and whatever out of the water because that is not what self care is about. It is about literally caring for yourself as a parent would. But you are an adult, and so you just have to buckle up and do it yourself. But now we we both have young kids. My kids are five and seven. Your kids are four and eight. They are still in that range of we do quite a lot of things for them. And a lot of times it's not fun telling them to go to bed on a school night when, I don't know, there's going to be fireworks or something like that, is not fun. But we, as the one with more life experience, have the smarts to know This is not going to work out if I let this kid stay up. They're going to be a disaster tomorrow. They're not going to be able to make it to school, whatever, whatever. So I'm going to put this kid to bed even though I'm going to be framed as the bad guy, right? And then when I talk to adults about this, we talk about turning off the Netflix, not staying up until 3 in the morning, you know, giving yourself a bedtime, caring for yourself in the way that a parent would. And this, you know, I'm not a therapist, but this gets extra sticky when the parent hasn't been doing that, right? Okay. So let's bring this into nutrition. Let's say that an adult has a healthy relationship with food and is able to incorporate gentle nutrition as a form of self care. I know the way this works for me is that when I'm itching for a snack at three o'clock and I know that I've got some Reese's cups and that would be awesome. But I know that I'm then going to tank my energy afterwards. So I will grab an apple and peanut butter instead or whatever, right? You know, it's nothing wrong with the Reese's. It's just me saying, I think I know a little better than this. I've got the past experience. I'll have the Reese's before I go to bed. Doesn't
1: matter if my energy tanks then, whatever. Oh yeah. So that's the part of, you know, the three parts of intuitive eating, right? That's the logic and reason part. And that's you know just really quickly like so often people think intuitive eating is just about craving and appetite and we also want to remember it's also about thoughts like our logic and reason planning ahead for example like you just did or also about you know emotion and our emotional state so yeah I'm totally with you
0: so as parents we do this for our kids and i want listeners to recognize that you and i are doing this for our kids as people who have healthy relationships with food now you've done your work I was blessed to not have to do the work in the first place. I don't know that that's true for anyone listening. They might still be in the thick of good food, bad food, and things like that. So we can talk about some tips for them (laughs) in a little bit. But in a perfect world, what is a parent doing for their young kids in terms of gentle nutrition as self-care for the child? Does this mean saying no to foods sometimes. Does this mean directing the nutrition? You know, we're not gonna have XYZ food right now. We are gonna have ABC food. And how does that even work when you can't make the kid eat it? So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little different from like sticking a toothbrush in their mouth. Not that yeah. we should like, you know, be pinning kids down to brush their teeth either, but you know, it's it's a little bit different. It's so much more nuanced. There's a difference between it's bedtime, get in your bed, and you can't, you can't tell a kid to eat something. So what's your take on this?
1: Yes. Yes. Lots of layers here. I, I want to be able to say it's so simple. Here's how you do it. This is just this one rule. Just follow this rule and you'll be good. It's not quite like that. There are Totally are times where it is in our child's best interest for us to do some critical thinking, to make a decision, to set a boundary, or to step in, like you mentioned, in the areas where they are not able to help themselves. What are those situations? They're limitless, but some examples could be, you know one thing that I think maybe a lot of families could relate to is if a child keeps asking for more snacks before bed. And I want a parent to be able to do a little bit of an assessment in the moment, you know, 30 seconds. Do I think my child's had enough to eat today? Do I have any idea what they've had to eat? (laughs) First of all, have I been around? Have I been paying attention? What else could be going on here? Are they having nightmares and they're afraid to go to bed? Are they just missing me because we didn't get any quality time today and they want to have another snack, you know, with me at the table? There's a million things that could be going on, but I want to empower a parent to do a little investigating and have a sense of trusting their own gut instinct. What's the next best step for my kid? You know, it's just as important to get to bed on time as it is to not go to bed hungry, overly hungry. You're not going to sleep well, right? So we know that. So it's not as simple as, you know, there's no more snacks after seven, the kitchen's closed, which I, you know, some people do that and that might work for them. And that's okay. I'm open here to lots of different ways that this can work. But it's also like, can we think about um, how my rigidity might be impacting my child? And are they doing okay with a rigidity around nighttime snacks? Or is this maybe causing more of an, an issue for them? So already I'm kind of you know going down this rabbit hole of like, hmm, what I'm talking about is attuned parenting and trusting yourself. But also I want parents to know that it is okay to be a decision maker. Not only is it okay, it's really helpful. Our kids need to know that we're there paying attention, that we're keeping them safe, that we're making decisions that are helpful for them, that we are like seeing them for what's going on. So that's one example, right? Is this like bedtime snacking, and and that we need to make the decision we're done for the night and we're going to bed. And I think how we communicate that is really important. Are we able to stay calm? Are we able to stay non-judgmental? Are we able to not make it about food or sugar or junk foods or demonizing snack foods and things like that?
0: So that sounds to me like you're describing um, something I talk about a lot is authoritative parenting. We get tripped up. I think, especially for people who are coming into this with a disordered relationship with food or a past disordered relationship with food, uh, we get stuck on not being restrictive. And that is a huge element of it. And we can talk about how to not be restrictive within this structured framework. I mean, or we could not talk about it because that's literally what your whole book is about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that in this conversation of raising intuitive eaters, we often Don't talk enough about the flip side of what permissive parenting around food might do to a child's relationship with food and how to bring ourselves to that middle ground of the authoritative parenting of, like you mentioned, being attuned, but still saying no at times, having that structure. So do you have experience with families using a permissive approach? And what would you say is the disadvantage there?
1: Yeah, I do have experience with that. I see that a lot, especially in, like you said, parents who did not have a protected young, you know, first few years or young part of their life. They didn't have maybe the structure or they had so much rigidity that they never want to put that onto their kids and they want to you know, avoid diet mentality at all costs. So it's really understandable for those who have struggled with dieting or too many food rules, and we don't want our kids to be harmed by that. But it's important that parents see that being overly permissive can also miss the mark on this because that comes back to, like I said, our kids need us to create this sense of safety and trust. And the way that we do that with food is with the structure that they know that it is not their job to decide when the next meal is coming. It is not their job to fill the fridge or the cupboards with the foods that we need to have available. So even though we're not explicitly like talking to our kids about this and teaching them about it, we are showing them through the way that we take on the responsibility of the feeding and the structure that they will be safe and fed. And they sense that and they know it if they're living it. And then we also see that in kids who don't experience that for a variety of different reasons will possibly, you know, nothing's for sure, but but they're more likely to, to have some disordered eating or dysregulated eating as a result. There is a study I recently read that caught my eye. It's from 2010, but the title was Controlling Maternal Feeding Practices Associated with Lower Risk for Dieting in Sixth Grade. And I was like you know, red flags. I'm like, what do they mean by controlling? And how do they know if this really reduced risk for disordered eating? So I actually was coming at it from a place of like, I wonder how, you know, if they really were able to capture like, you know, the disordered eating and that potentially over control is what can be a problem. We talk about over control a lot in our book. And when I read the study, it was really wonderful to see That, what they found is that when there was an element of control, the way they're defining control is structure, not over control, not rigidity, not dieting, but simply structure, structured meals and snacks. So, the kind of summary of this was that rather than being an aversive or reactive behavior that restricts child eating, controlling feeding practices may be characterized by the setting of rules and structure that proactively guide daily eating behavior. Thus, children can develop a more regulated pattern of eating and not have to revert to dieting. Mm. And I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. And and really looked at this is the part of of our role that is really helpful for reducing risk of dieting and disordered eating. And that's not the only study out there around this, but... When we want to just say yes, yes, yes out of this like reaction to our own harm and our own trauma from dieting, the structure falls apart. We're not necessarily setting them up to be able to have, you know, uh, good blood sugar balance throughout the day, which then can lead them astray from those internal hunger and satiety signals. So sure, once in a while, you know, here and there, we really wanna be flexible, right? Don't don't get me wrong. Flexibility is key but it's in this balance of we're creating this environment that's fairly predictable for them and that they can trust and that kids are not having to bear the weight of this burden of feeding themselves. Yeah, yeah.
0: definitely. Because th- this is parenting, right? This is child care, You know, same as we don't expect the baby to change their own diaper or whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> These are things that we need to do for our kids because we are caring for our kids. But let's talk about the parent who does not have a good sense of caring even for themselves in this way, and it doesn't make it that much harder for them to extend that to their kids? What would you say to that parent? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I want to give this parent a hug and let them know that, yes, it's going to be like an unfolding process. And this is going to be uncomfortable and it's okay because ultimately your love and awareness about how your child is receiving the information from you is going to mean something to them, whether or not you do it perfectly. So we don't have to be perfect at this, but in the book, we talk about values. And so when you're having trouble making a decision in the moment, you can do a check-in with the why. Why am I making this decision? So if I'm saying no to a food request, why am I making that decision? Is it because of diet culture, because of fat phobia, because of, you know, I'm afraid of what someone's going to think who's observing me, or is it because I know that I'm going to set my child up to like come to this lunch meal in 30 minutes with an appetite, or because I know that right now, you know, we're doing other things and you know, I need to have them focus on this homework assignment versus going and getting another snack right now. And then we'll have snack when it's over. So whatever the why is, I think that's the thing that can ground you and help you come to your conclusion, your decision. Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although I do wonder about the parent who is having trouble extrapolating the why of I have learned that too much sugar is bad for my kids, and I am trying to be a good parent here. So I am saying no to a sugary food out of good parenting. And I think that some people like will go to the part and say it's not diet culture. I swear up and down it's not diet culture. I just know that they've had X amount of sugar today, and I feel like as a good parent, <laughs> I should direct them towards other foods. How can a parent? talk themselves through that situation.
1: Mm -hmm. So I wonder if this is a parent who hasn't had a lot of opportunity in building some trust around this. Like, so if you're newer to this, I do think it's important to explore how does my child set their own limit? Are they able to do that? Do they do that? What happens if I don't step in right now? Maybe that's the really uncomfortable thing for someone is actually not saying no. And Depending on the child's age, right, if you have an older child or a preteen, it's really important for them to be able to make these decisions, especially when you're not around. So we need them to practice and we need them to have some more permission there. And I also want to kind of take the heat off of this, right, because I think that when we've been really entrenched in diet culture for a long time, we might feel that every single decision we make is super important. And we're either making the wrong choice or we're making the right choice. And I'd like people to not get so kind of deep into that and kind of relax a little bit and like be on your own team and say, you know what, my gut right now is telling me that like, we're going to put that away. I think they've had a lot of, you know, time with it. They've had permission with it. It's been out for a while and, and I'm just going to put it away because they've had their chance to have this like unlimited snack or whatever it is. There's so many different ways that this looks. I think you also have, if there's a sense in you that this is a fear food for me, or I don't give myself permission to eat this food, and maybe that's why I'm so uncomfortable with allowing my child to eat it. And if that's something that's showing up for someone, I think that kind of the place to tackle there is having some opportunities where we're not intervening and we're seeing how it plays out and we're noticing over time yeah this this does balance out because that really is what we see in intuitive eaters and they you know a, there was a huge study that came out that looked at kids over 8 years and followed them and those who had higher intuitive eating markers basically had considerably less binge eating had healthier relationships with food had healthier you know mental health markers and all those things and we get a little bit too focused in on the you know one moment and the right decision. And if you haven't had the experience of really giving your kids an opportunity to have trust and to trust them, that's, I think, what we need to be focusing on. And at the same time, saying no is not going to harm your child's relationship with food. When they have this broader experience of lots of times, I have permission to eat. Sometimes we have a no.
0: That was going to be my next question is, uh, you know, I'm probably especially focused on this because when I'm not recording podcasts, I am working with parents on improving their kids' nutrition. And generally it's kids who are not typical in terms of, yeah, that kid's getting more or less, you know, whatever they need. Like there is an iron deficiency or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this gets especially challenging because parents are generally not dietitians and they need my guidance to say these are high iron foods or whatever. But then we get into an even more challenging situation of... Well, he needs to eat the iron foods. He needs to eat the protein. he needs to eat, you know whatever. And sometimes it's more of this. And then sometimes it's it is limiting. I think a really good example for this is milk intake. And that excessive milk intake can put a child at risk for anemia because calcium competes with iron. And I've even seen this with my own kids. I've got one kid who's a milk lover. And, you know, I'm, like, Googling how many ounces of milk can a kid have in a day, and I'm trying to, like, stop myself from having that be a hard and fast rule. But at the same time, if I gave her milk every time she asked, I know that it would displace her appetite for the variety of other foods that she needs, and it could increase her risk of anemia. So I do need to say no sometimes. And even like, I've got a running tally in my head of more or less how much milk she's had in a day. And I like that example, because it's not sugar. I mean, there's sugar in milk. But you know, my last podcast was about not having a running tally about how many grams of sugar your kid has had, right? Or have they had their treat for the day? Or have they had the number of grams of sugar that the American Heart Association (laughs) recommends or whatever, right? And I'm just curious how to reconcile this, because to one degree, it is that that child care of I need to make sure that you know I'm doing my job of providing gentle nutrition for my kids and sometimes that is saying no and putting away a food. sometimes it is the free for all and letting yeah. them have as much as they want. So what's the parents role here?
1: Yeah. So my my daughter's this exact same way and she was the one who had the low iron and you know that was a really interesting experience for me because i was encouraged to force her to take an iron supplement which tasted terribly we tried like all these different ones and then i was encouraged to you know hide it in her yogurt or hide it in something and she very quickly figured it out and i and i knew that if i did that i was going to lose the trust and that was a much bigger problem so you know you keep working and she's not a meat eater and not, you know, so we found iron fortified cereals and that was a great way to get it. But yeah, we, you know what, we've limited the milk. And I think there are child friendly ways of explaining things when you do have to set a limit that can be really helpful. So kids want to know why they want to know why you're doing what you're doing. And we don't have to get into all the details with them, you know, but we can share with them in a way that they understand, you know, like, oh, you know, too much milk, makes it hard for you to go to the bathroom. Or we can only have, you know, about three or four cups of milk a day. And other than that, we're going to have other things to drink because it's not working so well for your tummy. Or the doctor found out that too much milk's actually not very, you know, helpful for your body right now. And we really want to take care of your body and listen to your body. And kids really appreciate having a reason And so I'm a big fan of talking about it when there's a no situation and helping them understand why it helps them feel comfortable. It helps them, you know, be more kind of on the same team. And we all can like understand what the plan is here. And and they're not always going to be happy about the no. I mean, here's a perfect example. Yesterday morning was Father's Day. I gave my husband a big bag of his favorite gummies in his Father's Day present. They're all in bed. The kids are like, I want some gummies. And so, you know, they open the gummies. They're all having gummies. That's unusual. Okay. But it, it was an unusual day and it was a connection moment and it was a lot of emotion going on. And so after a little while, my husband, you know, closes up, wraps up the bag and we're not having any more gummies. We're going to go have breakfast soon. This morning, my son wakes up. First thing he says, I want some gummies. So it's not harming him that I said, we're not having gummies this morning. I can get you something else. It sounds like you're hungry. I'm going to go get your breakfast together. Because that's what they're saying too when they're asking for something. Is they're saying, you know, maybe a food that is top of mind for them or something that they recently had or something that's really easy for them to eat. And it's our job to interpret what they're saying. And usually when a kid is asking for something to eat, it's because they're hungry and they're ready for something to eat. There's other reasons too. And that goes back into the tuning in. What's really going on here? Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm interested. I I totally agree with what you're saying about, you know, the doctor found that, you know, it might make it hard to poop if we have too much of this. I wonder... If there's a slippery slope to diet culture there in terms of, you know, we need to eat our carrots because they help you see, (laughs) I wonder if, which is kind of a fallacy anyway, (laughs) Um, uh, I wonder if there's a rule of thumb here, like to, to stick to the reason when it's a no, but like maybe not push the reasons... Even when we're our, in our heads, we're like, I want them to eat the protein. I want them to eat the vegetables. <laughs> Maybe not push the reasons when it's a, a yes. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I know, right? Because it is it is confusing. I, I have thought about this and thought about this and thought about this. And I think I'm doing a disservice if I say that there's a rule of thumb. I really think that parents are capable of looking at the different things that are influencing the situation and when they're informed about diet culture when they're you know doing some unlearning and doing some work and they understand that pressuring a child to eat their peas might make them eat their peas in the short term because they want to please you or they want the reward but it's not likely to kind of draw the foundation of this all foods are you know equal and i appreciate vegetables and fruits the way that i appreciate my bread and mac and cheese right it's not likely to lead them to this place of naturally being curious about these foods when they're experiencing pressure. So back to your question, I I don't think there's a rule of thumb. I think that when we can do a quick values check and we can think about our why, it can give us enough information to kind of lead us into like, what's the next best step here? Am I really noticing I'm being triggered, you know, by this certain food and worrying about my child's weight? that is definitely fat phobia influencing me right now they deserve to have permission to eat they deserve to know that in any body they can you know enjoy the same foods that a child in a different body would enjoy for example so i think practicing this mindfulness of checking in briefly with the why is really one of the most important things yeah
0: yeah, and that's that much harder when you're not sure what your why is because you're still untangling all that from diet culture. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's a very big job to unlearn diet culture. I mean, these questions are very real and true and complicated because so many parents don't even realize how much diet culture is influencing their beliefs about food. And at the same time, you can change. You can learn. I mean, that's why we wrote this book is, you know, not just because I want parents to like not be absorbed in diet culture, but because you can unlearn this stuff and you can see this in a different light and you can see your decisions and your and your feeding legacy and your history with your own food and body. And that can inform how you can help support your kids in this way where you are able to create structure that is really supportive for them and that also gives them the space they need to form their own food kind of patterns and relationship with food.
0: Yeah, well, I almost think that that's a perfect note to end on, but I'm gonna throw one more question your way. Because of what you said about kids forming their own food patterns, in preferences. I like to think about this sometimes as we've got one kid who wants to be on the soccer field all the time. We've got one kid who wants to be holed up with a book and we don't tell the kid who's holed up with a book, like, why don't you get out on the soccer field? Like we embrace that. That's that kid's individuality, but when it comes to this kid is an adventurous eater and we'll try any new vegetable that you put in front of them. And this kid just wants this mac and cheese and applesauce and, you know, whatever else it is, what can we say to that parent who is in the position of taking the kid to a family gathering and the kid doesn't want to eat what's served and relatives are going to have opinions or, you know, sure would be nice for the kids to get school lunch, but here I am making a peanut butter sandwich every day. You know, what do we say to that parent who is, I guess, I don't know if burden is the right word. I'm sure a lot of parents feel like it's a burden that their kid is not an adventurous eater. And part of that is, you know, that's what diet culture tells us is that maybe if we did division of responsibility correctly and read your book and, you know, the solution is not, you know, do everything in your book and your kid will be an amazing adventurous eater. But there is like some burden to my kid doesn't eat the way I want them to. And part of that diet culture and part of that is logistical of, just want them to eat the school lunch. And so I don't have to be making a peanut butter sandwich at 11 PM. Right. So what do you yeah. say to that
1: yeah. parent? Well, I know what to say to that parent because I am that parent. I have one and I have one of a different kind of, you know, eating style. And I know that that can be really difficult and every child is going to have things that present that are difficult and challenges. And sometimes sometimes It's a food thing. So is it fun? Is it easy? No, but what can we do? I would encourage that parent to start by knowing you are not alone. This is not unusual. This is actually pretty typical for a big chunk of the kids out there. Take a breath, make it easier on yourself. And the way we make it easier on ourselves is by not overly worrying about it. It's okay. Make those sandwiches or make that mac and cheese. I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've made mac and cheese. It's okay. Part of the way we can exhale about this a little bit is knowing like, I am here supporting my child in their here and now body with their unique needs, and that's what I'm committed to. That's what I'm going to do. And I can continue to stay open and help them be curious and explore foods over time. I can put this... You know, plate of some different, less preferred foods on the table a lot of the time and still let them have exposure to it and let them taste it when they're ready. Or I can ask them to help me with some grocery shopping or some meal prep sometimes and get them some exposure that way. But what I'm committed to is not shaming them for it. What I'm committed to is not causing further harm by forcing them or bribing them or pressuring them or punishing them. And so we can kind of settle into like, I'm feeling confident or at least pretending to feel confident in the beginning that I'm protecting what I need to protect and I'm getting my child fed and I can trust their body. And this may not look exactly how I'm told it has to look or what it should look like, but my kid is doing okay. And I'm aware and monitoring, are they growing? Are they getting enough? We can be aware of those things. And then we can relax where we can relax. And I think that that's so important because it's a worry cycle and worry will perpetuate more worry and more anxiety and we don't need to go there.
0: Yeah, I love that answer. And I just, if this is you listening, this is your kid, I just want to throw it out there that it's just confounded by the fact that we're all swimming in diet culture, right? Like if your kid is a bookworm and not a soccer player, that's less of a problem because we celebrate both of those things. And we don't celebrate The kid who wants the mac and cheese and peanut butter sandwiches, which
1: is such a shame because I'm sure that that's an amazing kid. (laughs) People all around that child will make comments about Mm -hmm. that and they will get enough, more than enough of that Mm -hmm. (laughs) in their life without you needing to participate in that. You can be kind of the steadfast place where they feel safe and accepted and cared for. And that doesn't mean that you stop offering them different foods as they grow. It doesn't mean that that you're like compromising in any way. Over time, I think a lot of parents are going to have experiences that blow them away when their selective eater will one day say, I'm going to try that meatball. Or that nectarine looks juicy. Give me that. And it's incredible because you realize, oh my God, like they will try something. (laughs) And, you know, so... I know the worry that parents face and I want to help more of them relax because in a lot of cases, it's going to do everybody some good to relax about it. Yeah. adults and kids together, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I love that. Thank you so much for your time today, Sumner. I think this is just going to be such a great resource for my listeners. And the book is How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. You can get it anywhere, right? Yep. (laughs) And tell us a little bit more about where to find you.
1: Um, I am on Instagram at intuitiveeatingrd, and our book website is intuitiveeatingforkids.com, and that's the number four.
0: Okay, I will put both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Sumner.
1: Thank you so much for everything you do. Take care. Take care.
0: Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can continue the discussion in my free Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids, or on the Anti-Diet Kids Instagram page. You'll find links to both in today's show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, I would so appreciate you leaving a rating and review in your podcast player. It really helps new listeners find the show. And of course, I always love reading them. Until next time, embrace the mess.